Lord Jesus, may your light shine among us, your servants, as we come to learn from your teaching. May the words of my mouth reflect the heart of your testimony. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. I don't know about you, but I often feel an overwhelming sense of stress and busyness these days. I have this constant feeling of hurry up, let's get going. Uh, The tasks of life never seem to slow down. Father Ross just mentioned, I'm finishing up my studies here at the seminary. That's busy enough. I'm also completing some internship work at Gordon College, counseling students. I'm planning my wedding in a couple of months. That's always fun. I'm getting ready to move across the country. I'm preparing and delivering this sermon. Some of you might be sitting there and thinking, is this guy crazy? What's he doing up there? If you're a student like I am, you know that sense of urgency. The assignments tend to pile up waiting for us to complete them. Or maybe you work a very high-stress job. Right now, we're in the middle of the fourth quarter of the fiscal year. The reports are due. Performance reviews are scheduled. As soon as we meet our deadlines, three more take their place. For some of us here at Trinity, we are experiencing the joyful but also challenging weight of parenthood as we've accepted new lives into our families. Or maybe you and your loved ones are facing some very painful circumstances right now. Familial conflict, financial worry, mental health challenges. There are so many reasons for us to feel physically and emotionally exhausted from all the things that demand our attention. And when you zoom out and take a look at society right now, I think we are seeing a similar story. Every day we are inundated with more news of domestic and international injustice to grieve. News outlets and social media algorithms are doing a good job keeping folks divided as they give us more and more things to look at and process. The result is that there's this tension that never seems to fully go away. You get the picture. It's just so much. I have to confess, when it feels like too much is happening around me, the whole faith thing becomes very hard. It's that feeling that Father Tim talked about last week when Jesus is tapping us on the shoulder and we're not recognizing it. We become so focused on getting to the next thing or dealing with the next problem that we miss the daily bread that Jesus is giving us. Sometimes I think even church can feel like this. From time to time, we can experience spiritual exhaustion. Last week, we celebrated Christ the King Sunday. This week, we are celebrating the first, se- the first Sunday in the season of Advent, a new church year, the time in where, where we are anticipating the celebration of Christ's incarnation. And if you're struggling to keep up like me, maybe you came into church this morning, you saw the Advent wreath, and you thought, oh my goodness, more transition. I'm still adjusting to the stuff going on in my life. This feels like yet another thing I need to keep in mind. What if I'm not there yet? The resulting picture is that, for me, I actually miss the mark of what Advent is for. Advent is a season of preparation. Advent is a season of joy. Advent is a season of excitement. And 
It is also the furthest thing from the hustle and bustle of American culture. These candles are not simply a countdown to Christmas. They are reminders of how we can learn to meet Jesus in the present moment. You might remember that last week, Father Tim told us, we are celebrating the reality of a kingdom that already exists. And so these weeks of Advent, I find, give us the opportunity to ask two fundamental questions. First, who is the king? The answer there is pretty straightforward. It's Jesus. The second question, I think, goes one step further. What is his kingdom like? I'd like us to take a few minutes to glimpse how God gives us an answer to this through his servant, Micah. So to give some brief context, Micah is one of the minor prophets that we find in the Old Testament. I find that these guys get a bad rep. We hear the word minor and we tend to think about them the way we think about the minor key in music, somewhat melancholy, depressing, all doom and gloom. The thing is, or we think about the prophets as only telling us about the sins we don't want to hear about, and it can be easy to write them off. But the truth is, the prophets are far more than that. Remember, they are God's covenant mediators. They're the ones chosen to remind God's people of his relationship to them. And yes, this will include speaking truth when people go astray. They are not afraid to call a spade a spade or a sin a sin. They also remind God's people of his mercy and his compassion. So what about Micah himself? Why would we take time to study his prophecy during Advent? Usually, folks go to Micah for two reasons. The first reason actually makes a lot of sense. Micah, as a reminder, is actually one of the prophets who foreshadows the coming Messiah, which you can find in chapter 5. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. It's a good reason. The second reason we tend to go to Micah is for chapter 6, verse 8. It's a kind of bumper sticker Old Testament verse. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? These verses are absolutely beautiful. They are good. They are important. And after we read them, I find we stop, which is a shame because when we read these verses separately from the whole book, from our scripture today, we don't necessarily appreciate why Micah is prophesying in the first place. We tend to miss the big picture. So what's going on in our passage? What's happening around Micah that might help us understand his words in chapter 4? Well, historically, we know that Micah is working in the late 700s BC. Since the time of Solomon, we know that the kingdom has been divided into northern Israel and southern Judah. And that's been the case for about 250 years, give or take a few. And by the time Micah comes on the scene, both Israel and Judah have had their fair share of kings who departed from the Lord's covenant. They sought security in military alliances with other ancient Near Eastern countries, and they were producing internal strife within their own borders. 
With regards to faith, that story is also somewhat grim. So often do we find God's people leaning on the worship of other gods that lay outside of the exclusive covenant God had ordained. We find that they tend to be forgetting the miracles that God worked for them as he brought them up out of Egypt, led them in the wilderness, brought them into the land they now occupy, and gave them a king. In fact, it's actually highly likely that Micah is watching. He's witnessing the continual fall of the northern kingdom until its fall in 722 BC. And there's this urgency that we find in the first three chapters of of Micah's prophecy, warning Judah that they are not far away from facing the same fate. The sins committed among God's people and sometimes by God's people demand God's response. I mean, if there were news headlines and social media posts in Micah's day, they would have given us some serious moments to pause and reflect. Just listen to a few of these. There are those who devise wickedness. They covet fields and seize them and houses, and they take them away because it is in the power of their hand. They oppress a man in his house. That's chapter two. Here's another one. Hear, you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from my people? It's chapter three. There are those prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against one who puts nothing into their mouths. Jerusalem has been built with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. When I hear Micah's historical witness, I, my first thought is, I wish that didn't sound so familiar. I'm sure all of us can identify similar problems that we see in our day-to-day lives that could mirror Micah's observations. It makes me ask the question, what's God's response to this? How does Micah envision God's kingdom speaking into the dire circumstances of his people. And how does that reach us here in Advent 2022? So with the limited time we have, I want us to just walk through quickly Micah's words in chapter four that we read, noticing the clues along the way, which teach us how God's power will manifest itself in a new creation. So if you'd like to follow along, feel free to scroll back up um, on your phones to the lesson. We read, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted above the hills, and all people shall flow to it. There's a lot packed into that first verse. What's Micah getting at? Well, first, he's using the phrase latter days. And when he uses that phrase, he's using prophetic language that extends beyond his time frame, but it doesn't specify a specific date. Why is that important? It's important to recognize because there are some very well-meaning folks who tend to take Micah's words and try and package them in different kinds of theologies, kind of play-by-plays of how the eschatological age is going to play out. You know some of these. The problem is that those explanations tend to fall short. 
that sort of interpretation reads into the text rather than letting the prophet, and by extension God, speak for himself. The emphasis here is not on the when of the promise, but the certainty of the promise. And then you have this mountain imagery, the mountain of the house of the Lord. In the ancient Near East, mountains served as the spaces of worship for gods of many different cultures. They showcased power, authority, and majesty. And we also know that God uses mountains to communicate with his creation. You might remember Moses at Sinai, Elijah's encounter with the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and then fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. I think that's Mount Tabor, if I remember correctly. So here we find Micah using the language of his world to show how the Lord is totally unique. He's reminding Israel that the God of their fathers is the one true God who reigns supremely over the earth and all that lies within it. Furthermore, he does not stand apart from his people, but by his nature actually takes the first step towards a broken creation. His initiative beckons worshipers. And many nations shall come and they shall say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Notice how Micah echoes the promises made to Israel's patriarchs, that many nations through them would be blessed. The Lord has always intended for all groups and all ethnicities to be included in his kingdom, even those who opposed Israel, to be close to God. When we think back to God's revelation at Sinai, only Moses was permitted to travel up the mountain, to come into contact with God's holiness and teaching through receiving the Ten Commandments on the tablet of stones. But here, Micah assures us that the kingdom of God fundamentally involves direct access to God. To be in his presence means that our lives will be wholly transformed. And by his grace and mercy and renewal of his people, his witness extends to the ends of the earth. When St. John records his revelation, he too reminds us of the same kingdom promise. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Micah continues. He shall judge between many peoples and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Do you hear the power of God's voice? His authority calls all nations and all peoples to himself. His wisdom and teaching flows out of that relationship, and out of those conditions, peace is established. If we take a closer look at the word Micah uses for beat, we find that it's actually unique. It entails the destruction of physical items, yes, but it also means the destruction of their intended purpose. He is speaking to the hearts 
of those that would use weapons of war to further their own ends, those who would oppress the poor and the vulnerable. You know, it's fascinating. That phrase, swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, I encourage you to go and look it up. It pops up all over history. There are some very special places where it appears. It appears very frequently in the speeches and sermons of Dr. Martin Luther King. Helps give us hope. He draws on the same language. There was one, uh, one occurrence of the phrase that I found very fascinating. The United Nations has a bronze statue in its garden. And it depicts this very action of a person hammering a sword into a farming implement. I was doing a little bit of research about it, and it turns out that the country that gifted that statue was the former Soviet Union in the 60s. With the news coming out of Ukraine today, it can feel hard for us to hold those two truths together. It shows us human frailty without God's intervention. But Micah will give us some reassurance on that front. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The kind of peace that Micah is speaking of does not refer to just absence of conflict. The peace that God creates is one where the tactics of military stockpiles and armament are rendered obsolete. The vine and the fig tree are well-known symbols to Micah's audience of the Lord's provision and protection. He is the Lord of hosts, the title used by biblical authors to show his authority over all conflict. And because God has declared his promise, Micah's vision ends where it began, that God will neither leave us or forsake us. His kingdom makes good on his everlasting promise of forgiveness and redemption. So what does that vision mean for us? How do we connect the dots to what we have going on in our own lives? Well, maybe unsurprisingly, I think Micah gives us the answer. He helps us put the pieces together in verse 5. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord, our God, forever and ever. Here, Micah is no longer referring to a future time. He's actually appraising his current circumstances. Remember that he's witnessing the fall of the northern kingdom to Israel to one of her international enemies, Assyria. In fact, he also knows that Judah will fall to Babylon about 150 years later. I find his response to that knowledge striking. He does not throw up his hands in discouragement or dismissal. Instead, he says that our response to God's action matters. Listen again to the structure of his vision. God establishes the mountain. The nations travel to the mountain. The nations ascend the mountain. God teaches them on it. God settles international conflict, and the nations surrender their methods of war. The nations will live in security because, in energy, we are practicing this call and response which characterizes God's kingdom. We are, as his people, to be his witnesses in the world. 
while others may look to more convenient hills or to more convenient gods, followers of Christ are distinguished by their relationship to him. When Micah spoke of the coming Messiah, he was speaking to a deeper truth of the Lord's character. In fact, the name Micah is actually a question. It means, who is like the Lord? Today, we've noted how that question might be answered by first looking to the kind of kingdom we know Jesus Jesus is bringing. Friends, this season of Advent does not ask us to put away our concerns or our hardships for the sake of celebration. In fact, it's precisely the opposite. Advent is about recognizing that the realities of Jesus' kingdom will redeem the realities of a fallen world in which we live. The incarnation shows us that Jesus speaks into the busyness of life. He speaks into the joys of life, and yes, he speaks into the darkness of life too. No matter where you find yourself, you have the opportunity to encounter him each day in both big and small moments. It could look like a miracle of healing or deliverance, but it can also look like a quick prayer on the way to work or on the way to school. How might you respond to God's invitation this season? In a few minutes, we, the church, are going to practice our response as we join together to celebrate the Eucharist. And as you make your way forward to the altar, I would encourage you to just take a look around, to take in the image of two streams of people willingly seeking the Lord and receiving the presence of Jesus in real time. That's a glimpse of the new creation when Jesus establishes his kingdom. That is the picture of Advent. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks for your kingdom that you have established through your death and resurrection. As we prepare to meet you today, would the words of your prophet Micah remind us of your faithfulness and help us respond to the promise of your love? Would you help us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.